Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Greg Heo. Greg is an iOS engineer at Instagram, and he occasionally speaks and writes about Swift. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, Garrick. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. How's it going? What are you up to? Uh, not much. Just hanging around and uh, got a microphone and ready to talk Swift and all of that. <laughs> nice, nice. I am in Los Angeles. It's, uh, I think it's a sunny... Yeah, I think it's a sunny morning, and uh, I had a waffle, I have a smoothie I made with my new Nutribullet Prime, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a good weekend. What is the Prime? What's the difference there with the regular Nutribullet? I guess it like comes with extra stuff, like uh, it came with like two to-go like cup things with yeah, um, yeah, yeah. with like to-go tops that you screw on with like a, like a hole in it that you can pop on and off or something. Oh, I get it. Nice. Okay. And uh, yeah, like just came with like extra goodies, I guess. And it looks a little bigger. I don't know. Maybe it <laughs> it goes faster. I'm not sure. It <laughs> Blends was a, faster. More blending power. Yeah. It was a gift, an early gift for Valentine's Day from uh, my fiance, my fiance's mom. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, anyways, that's that's what I'm up to here on on uh, this beautiful morning. How about you? You are in San Francisco, right? I am in San Francisco. Also, a nice sunny day. We've had a lot of rain lately, which is good for the drought that they say is ending. But uh, yeah, also a nice sunny morning. I am waking up early these days, so I was already up, went for a run, and came back. So yeah, also a nice morning. Yeah. So it it was really rainy. It's weird because it's like usually sunny you know well at least here in los angeles i know it's like kind of sometimes foggy i guess in san francisco and windy but like it's usually sunny here in la but then my cousin came from amsterdam and visited and like the whole time he was here it was raining it's really weird <laughs> it always happens like that doesn't it whenever you have someone you want to show around and then it's like rain and they're like i thought this was california what's going on right yeah i hear that once in a while and literally the day he left was the day that like the sun came out you know just the sun came yeah. out on like tuesday i think mm. yeah Super weird. Of course. Okay, so you are an iOS engineer at Instagram. You live in San Francisco. I mean, mm -hmm. that sounds like pretty cool. Like, kind of like living the dream, right? Instagram, let's be honest, is one of the coolest products out there um, in so many different ways. Like, there's, and there's so many different types of people using Instagram. Um, my fiance got the iPhone because of Instagram. Like, she oh, saw wow. my brother. Yeah, she saw my, or no, my, my brother had it or something. Then I, uh, you know, Instagram. He's like, hey, check out this Instagram thing. This was like back in 2008 or something like that, 2009. Hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, well, cool, Instagram. And we went on a trip and my fiance started using Instagram on my phone. She's like, this is so cool. And like that day before like Verizon ended their unlimited data plan or something, <laughs> she got an iPhone with the unlimited data plan because Good of timing. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's she, pretty cool. Um, I think out of all of the sort of Facebook products, that are out there in the world, and there are a lot, but Instagram was definitely the one that I used the most when I started, when I got hired at Facebook. So I think very early on, I was like, yeah, I think, you know, I want to work on Instagram just because it's the product I'm most familiar with. And that's yeah, kind of cool to be able to work on something that you use um, day to day. Wait, so you got to like choose? It was like, hey, I want to work on Instagram. They're like, okay, Greg, go ahead. That's kind of how it works. You get hired into <laughs> Facebook 
And I believe uh, Google is like the polar opposite. If you get hired at Google, then it's like the Gmail team will say, you know, they I guess they'll interview and you and you get hired and then you work on Gmail, for example. But at Facebook, they just hire, you know, they're just like, we want to hire smart people who can code. And then they just hire you generally for Facebook. And then you do like a six week, they call it boot camp. So you learn about the whole Facebook stack and how they do web stuff and deployment and deploy the mobile apps and all that stuff. And then you see which teams are sort of hiring. So there's almost like a second round of hiring where you're like, maybe I'm interested in Messenger. Maybe I'm interested in, uh, you know, the Moments app. Maybe I'm interested in Instagram. And then if the team has sort of spots open, then you can talk to them. And then, yeah, it's almost like a second round of hiring. But, you know, you're already in the company, so it's not that bad. It's not like a job interview, but... You get to go around and see what teams you're interested in and whether it's a good fit, and then you get to pick. So that's definitely a unique thing, I think, about Facebook is how they handle that kind of thing. So you got to pick, but then do they have to say, like, yes, we want you on the team or something like that? Like there's yeah, like a second like some, interview, you said? Yeah, like if you really wanted to work on uh, Messenger and if they were like, oh, we don't have any open seats, you know, like our um, like our quota is full, we can't take any more people because of whatever budget or whatever reasons, then yeah, it's possible that, you know, you really, really want to work on this particular team and they just don't have any spots open. But um, yeah, it's a big company and lots of places are looking for people. So uh, that's usually not a problem. But And plus, Instagram has like multiple, just within Instagram, there's multiple teams, people working on, you know, adding photos, people working on filters, people working on video and all kinds of teams, and so chances are you'll get um, you'll you'll get something you're interested in. And so, from my understanding, you're on the video team. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember uh, lately, I've been like using Instagram Stories, which is like super awesome. And mm. uh, I feel like kind of like a ninja. Actually, I keep it like when I put my phone in my pocket, I I lock it, but like with Instagram. Uh, I think with Instagram Stories still like there. So then I just pull it out. <laughs> Do a story real quick, lock my phone and put it back in. Yeah. And like the whole, there's so much in that feature. It's just incredible. Um, but it's all very, it's not in your face. It's really cool. Um, so, you, so you were, you like helped with the video part of that or? A stories launched, I think, right after I joined the team. So I didn't do very much work on stories. And like I was there for the stories launch when everyone showed up early in the morning and that kind of thing. But um, I've, I've worked on some video related things throughout the app i guess there are like i guess they call them like vertical teams where it's like i work on stories i work on um you know posting to feed or something like that and then there are more horizontal teams where it's like i look after um app performance or i look after video so video is considered one of those oh, horizontal teams okay so me and my colleagues will look at video sort of you know because there's video on feed there's video in profile there's video in stories so we're a little bit more of a horizontal team so to speak that's really awesome. So in that yeah. way, you're creating like a lot of reusable code and components and, and, and kind of thinking more in that sort of vein, right? Of like reusable reusability and really good object-oriented design. Yeah, that's the idea. Like we're not a specific product, although you could think of video as a product, but there's no like, here is the video tab of the app. Like there's not really that kind of thing. So yeah, it's sort of wherever video is in the app, then hopefully that's sort of what our team is mandated uh, to look after. Man, I can only imagine like the people that are working um, on your team, like even just like the sort of community facing people like you have. I think Jesse works at Instagram, too, right? Jesse, how do you say his last name? Squires? Jesse Squires. Yeah. yeah. And then Ryan Nystrom. Yep. 
like I don't know everybody, but like even just those two people, like I've had some interactions with them, and it's just like, man, there's probably some super amazing people, um, like on your team. It's awesome. That was kind of something that I noticed was like all of the Twitter, like before I met any of these people, like I, you know, you kind of interacted with them on Twitter, right? And like Ryan, I knew in person, but like like Jesse Squires and Ryan Olson and all these other people who I kind of knew on Twitter, and I would, and then I would look, and I'm like, oh, they all work at Facebook, but they all happen to work on Instagram. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it was just I was biased or something like that. But that was, I thought, pretty cool how um, Instagram engineers seem to be well represented, I think, in the community. So, yeah, I like that. Well, I can only imagine. It seems like a really, really cool, like, just dream. Like, I don't know, working at, at Instagram, like being in San Francisco, it seems like a pretty awesome, like, awesome time, awesome life. Um, can you... I mean, thinking back, like when you first got into all this, uh, how old were you when you like first started programming? I was a pretty well. I don't know. What it depends on what you consider programming. Like I had a Commodore sixty four when I was a kid that I absolutely loved, and like you know, your first memory of programming, or like even I- interacting yeah. with a computer. You know, yeah, that's probably it. We had computers in um, like when I was in ele- uh, grade school, and um, we had like Commodore sixty fours and Commodore Pets back in those days. Um, I know a lot of other schools have Apple equipment, so you hear a lot of stories about people who had like an Apple II or something, or they had Macs in their school, and that's how they kind of fell into the Apple world. We, I guess we were a Commodore school or something. So anyway, that, um, yeah, I remember writing really, you know, 10 print hello, 20 go to 10, that kind of thing, and it's like, let's make colors appear and that kind of thing. So I remember we had a computer in school, and I just really enjoyed playing. I don't remember what I was doing, <laughs> to be honest, but... Um, I remember really enjoying it. And so we ended up getting a computer at home and then that kind of set things up. And I think from an early age, like both my parents and I think I also knew that like, yeah, this is really cool. This is what I want to do uh, when I grow up. Um, so, yeah, I think I knew from an early age. So your first interaction with computers was through school. Mm-hmm. OK. And it was what grade? I think like even in kindergarten, we had computers wow. from what I remember. And then uh, definitely in late, like later, early grades, first grade and second grade. I remember we had computers and I'm trying to think if like were there official lessons or anything like that. I don't actually remember. I know later on there was like, yes, you could have like 30 minutes of computer time. I'm making air quotes here. And then they had some bunch of preloaded like uh, like an app that would teach you typing and one that would do like math, you know, little games where you would shoot the correct answer, that kind of thing. Like I do remember we had that later on. But in the early grades, I don't actually remember any computer lessons that we did. I think it was just like you would have some free time and you could either, you know, color or you could read a book or you could spend time on the computer. So I would always pick spending time on the computer. And yeah, I don't really have early memories of computers like mm-hmm. that that young. Yeah, I grew up in the Valley of Los Angeles in mm-hmm. a town called Moore Park. My earliest memory of like a computer type lesson, I think was like ninth or tenth grade, where we were learning how to type like with the Oregon Trail yeah. or like the Mario, something like that. Yeah. Now that was in school. Like, my earliest memory, um, like at home, was my brother had a like a MS DOS and like one of those like tabbed printer like things those you know those printers with like the tabs on the side like the the paper yes yes the little holes um, yeah, yeah yeah i know what you're talking about so where where did you grow up like where because it's it's interesting that you had ex- exposure to computers like in kindergarten like wh- where did you grow up i'm from toronto in canada wow um, i don't think there's anything special maybe I, again i know back in those days like apple and commodore were 
you know, they would give really big discounts to schools to have them get computers. So I don't know if my school was special and we had some, you know, we were like a pilot program. I have no idea, but we did have, like, there was like one computer, let's say, in every classroom, one or two. And so I do remember that. So I don't know. I guess that was special or different. But at the time, you know, I, I didn't know. I just assumed, like, everybody has one or two computers sitting in the back of the classroom. And that was just completely normal for me. So how did it work out that you got a computer at home? I remember my cousins got a computer. They, all, they got the Commodore 64 first, and I don't know why. Maybe it was just like, you know, computers are the future, so my aunt and uncle decided to get one. I don't know. But um, I think after they got one, and then we, we spent a lot of time together as kids, my sister and I, we would hang out with um, the cousins a lot. And so uh, I guess I was like, this is really cool. I want one too. I don't remember actually how it went, but then one day my dad went and got one, and then we had a... Commodore 64 as well. So it was good because my cousins had one, we had one that was sort of the computer that we had at school as well. So it all kind of meshed and matched up well. Was anyone in your family like already into computers, like a programmer or an engineer or a professor? No, nothing like that. So I should probably ask my aunt and uncle, like, what made you go and buy? Because this is like the 80s, right? Like nobody went and got a personal computer to, to get at home and they were so expensive too. So um, I, I'm, so I'm very grateful that they did, but I don't know. No, there's no computer kind of, no one else in my family is like a computer nerd or anything like that. So it, um, it did turn out very well. I mean, I probably spent my entire childhood playing video games on the thing. So maybe that didn't help as much, but it definitely, um, helped to have that exposure to it early, early on, I think. So video games were what you did with it when you first got it, probably your dad, you said brought it home yeah. and, and you just started playing video games or what did you do? Um, well, you get the computer, you boot it up. I mean, the startup time was awesome in those days, right? You just flip the switch and it was on and that was it. But it would take you to a basic prompt and then that was it. So you would write, you could try writing little programs. And there was like an okay, instruction so manual. A basic yeah. prompt. Like I hear this a lot and the instruction manual. So the basic prompt, is that like almost like the terminal prompt? It's a little friendly. You can think of it like, um like a REPL, like in Ruby has one. Uh, almost like, imagine you boot up the computer and it opens up a blank Swift playground. There okay. was the link to the show. So imagine it's like that. So you can like, you know, you can say print hello. You could make a for loop. And of course, basic is a much simpler, or Commodore 64 basic is a much simpler programming language than Swift. But you can imagine opening up basically into a playground. And that was the way it worked. And then from... The like from a Swift playground, you can call out and you can like run shell commands and things like that. So that was the kind of thing that you did. You could load programs off of disk or on tape or whatever you had, and kind of go from there. But uh, oh, yeah. So with the booklet, you could read about how to program the computer. But then, if you wanted to play a game, you'd have a disk or something, and you'd put it in the computer, and that's how you'd play the game. Yeah, you would put the disk in, and you would load it up, and then run it, and then uh, yeah, that's how you would do it. And so, did you actually start? learning to program like with that with that basic workbook it was very haha it was very basic <laughs> um i think they gave examples like here's how to play a sound here's how to draw some things on the screen and um did you do some of that i did do some of that yeah and then do you, you could remember? buy do I remember sorry go ahead uh, you could buy like ma computer magazines and then they would like print out the listing of programs and you would type them in like they would say you know here's a 200 line program and it'll be a solitaire game or whatever and then you would sit there and you would type it in and then you run it and then you get your solitaire game so it was almost like 
um, <laughs> the for early vestiges of open source almost because it's like here's the source code you could read it you can type it in and then you run it and you get your little game so yeah I did that a lot too do you remember how you felt you ran your first you know program or whatever that first moment was if you had one like what was that moment that obviously got you hooked like can you describe that I think it was just and I've heard other people say like a similar sentiment where it's like you're used to watching television where you just sit there and it's passive but this is like you can type in a program and run it and it's like great you know I have a solitaire game now that's awesome I'll play it but then you can go one step further and say well, how come when the game ends, it shows this thing, but I wanted to say this other thing? And you're like, well, I can go and change it. Or you're like, well, how come the uh, instead of the two of clubs, I wanted to say the two of Greg or something like that? I don't know. And you want to kind of fiddle with the game rules or something like that. And it's like, I have the whole source code here, basic source code. I can go in and change it. Or it's like, what happens if I change the multiplier for the score to be 100 instead of 10? And then you can kind of go around and play around it. So I don't remember any specific examples, but I think that's the kind of thing that I was interested in was like, here is this game or this program or whatever, and I can see how it works. And you can make little tweaks to say, what happens if I do this? What happens if I flip the switch? What happens if I change this number from one to two? You know, how does that affect it? And I remember spending a lot of time just kind of playing around with things like that to see how they would how they would work. I think I was also the kid who like, you know, took apart electronics and things like that. So this was a much safer uh, software version of that. Right. You're not, you're not lighting the house on fire. Or something. Exactly. Okay. So you're playing with this Commodore 64 and you're enjoying playing video games and making solitaire games. What happens next? Do you just continue, you know, learning pro, uh, you know, playing with computers all the way up through high school or, or did you did you study computers in high school or what 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 happened there I think in high school we had like a typing course they teach you how to type and I don't think I took that and then maybe it was later it was like 11th grade before there was like a computer course I forgot what it was called it was like computer maybe they call it computer science I don't know but they did teach some programming and, you know, what's a CPU? What's a memory? What's, um, I don't know, what's the ALU and things like that? So they taught that kind of thing. They taught a programming language. Uh, but that was, you know, very relatively, I think, late in high school. And I think there were two years. Maybe there was an 11th and a 12th or 13 or something. We had grade 13 back in those days in uh, Ontario where I grew up. I think they only have grade 12 now. But maybe there was only like one or two years um, or sorry, one or two computer classes, one in like a junior year, one in a senior year kind of thing. And that was it. So I did take them both. Yeah. Were you already like pretty advanced or were they interesting? I think the thing about like what's a CPU and, you know, what's a bus and that kind of thing. It's like, I don't know, that that, that wasn't very interesting to me. That was more just facts that you memorize. But um, it was definitely a mixed bag because you get some students who have never done programming and computer science or whatever they call it sounds cool. So they took it. And then you had other computer nerds like myself who had already done some work and some people were like really advanced and they had like had written really advanced things already so it's definitely a mixed a mixed group i think for me uh, they taught this really weird programming language that was like invented by the school board or something like that so what yeah <laughs> it's part of like the curriculum they made a programming language and so that's what we learned and um so i guess that was new and then we had little assignments where it was like um, you know make an application that takes a number and you know like a um, kind of like a 20 questions game or something like we'd have little assignments like that so I remember they you know they were pretty good 
and then the final project you could kind of you would just pick your own project and you would um, you know you and a partner or something would just write an application as your final project so it was pretty good but definitely the programming part was the the fun part, not the, or sorry, like the time where it's like, all right, so you've learned what memory is and you know how RAM works and what's ROM. And now you have 30 minutes to go and sit by the computer. And I was like, oh, all right, awesome. This is the part that I want to do. I don't want to learn about this other stuff. So, yeah. Were you programming outside of high school? Like you in, like, in your free time? Um, I think so. Yeah. I was still learning stuff. I guess by then I was older. I had a PC. So yeah, I think I had learned like C and uh, Visual Basic because I was on Windows back then and writing things like that. So yeah, I was I was programming on my own time as well. And were you thinking that this was like, were you already sort of set, like this is what I want to do? Did you know that it could be a job? And like, did you, was your, were there people around you that were sort of encouraging you or supporting you? Yeah, uh, like I said, I mean, I was so into computers from an early age that I think everybody said like, oh yeah, Greg's going to be a computer programmer when he grows up. And I was still definitely interested in it. So, yeah, I think I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for a living when I grow up. Yeah. So did you go to university and study computer science as well? I didn't. At f Well, I shouldn't say, say at, f at first. Um, I Our high school had a co-op program. So you would uh, enter the program, you'd say what you're interested in, and then you would get a co-op placement. And because of our scheduling, you would spend every other day for a half day, so sorry, you spend a half day every other day at a company. So some people were like, I love accounting. And they'd be like, great. So they'd find them in the place, a placement at like an accounting firm or at a bank or an insurance company or something. And so I was in there and then I was like, yeah, I want to do computers. And so they had placements, I think also at the bank and places like that. And I had a placement at an engineering firm. They did uh, transportation engineering, of all things. So they wow. wrote software for like traffic signals and uh, freeways and that kind of thing. And so I had a placement there. And I worked on some like database projects. I didn't actually work on a traffic signal system. Everyone can be glad that the signals are safe out there. I did work <laughs> on one eventually, but uh, I didn't when I was a student. And so I worked on some uh, traffic data database program. And then I think that was in 11th or maybe 12th, 11th grade. And then they were like, hey, you know, you're really good. Do you want to work here over the summer, like when the semester ended? And so I was like, sure. So I worked there full time during the summer. And then September rolled around and they were like, do you want to work here part time? You could like come in after school and you could come in on the weekends, you know, and just put some hours in. And so I did. So I actually worked there part or full time in the summer, part time during the school year, like for the next five years, I think, even after I started university. Um, so yeah, I had already, I'd already sort of been working by that time, but sorry, yeah. you're asking about school. And so, well, no, I mean, that's incredible that you were already working. Like I was wondering when, when did you really feel like you were programming? And it sounds like even before university, you were already like contributing to real things in the world. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after that first database project, um, I worked on like actual, you know, Tra traffic related solutions out there in the world so it was pretty cool what type of language were you using at that time they <laughs> it was actually the first i think the first the first project i worked on when i was sort of working full-time was it was again related to traffic data but it was you know it's like um freeway control system so it's government and so they were still using this ancient like 1980s vintage 1980s like one of those big refrigerator sized computers <laughs> it was called a it was called a Vax VMS system, um, okay. and it was a they had C and they had Fortran, and a lot of the code was written in Fortran, and so wow. I actually worked on Fortran um, 
back in the back when I first started, and it was C, so it wasn't so bad. Uh, wow. <laughs> and we did Windows uh, Windows front end stuff, so I did I think Visual Basic back then as well. Man, I don't know anything about any of that stuff. Do you feel like those? First off, how do how's that stuff compared to Swift? Do you like Swift? Uh, <laughs> like, is it are they totally different? Or I mean, I guess I've seen it before. And then the second question is like, do you feel like like that like you have to like even know any of that stuff like to become a good Swift programmer? Or I don't know. You know, there's that that yeah. whole like imposter syndrome and stuff. Like, oh, you're not a coder because you don't know C or something. Yeah. Um. It was interesting because I worked on it. And a few years later, my boss told me that uh, no one else in the company wanted to work on it because it was like <laughs> the mainframe, it was Fortran. Nobody wanted to learn Because who's writing Fortran? It's like writing COBOL in the finance industry. Like there are a few people who do. Apparently, like they pull people out of retirement to like fix the old code and stuff. And I remember for on the Vax VMS system, we had to call like one of the retired engineers he was like on the golf course and he took a call <laughs> and i asked him some questions but he apparently charges a lot of money like he's retired but he charges a lot as like a consultant because nobody else knows that stuff right so anyway but my boss had told me that nobody else in the company wanted to work on it so he figured he would give it to me because he's like oh you were like a student you can't say no so <laughs> that's why he signed it to me but it worked out because that same client had like projects two or three other projects as the years went on and then i kept on getting assigned to it because the client said, we like Greg. He already knows the whole system. And, you know, my boss was like, yeah, that's true. You're like the only one who's here who's worked on it and you know it. So I kept getting assigned to projects as the years went on. So I would say it really worked out in that sense. And I don't know, I kind of like vintage old computers. So I actually enjoyed it. I told him, I'm like, yeah, you get to learn Fortran, get to work on the old mainframe. I, I actually enjoyed it. And he was a little surprised at that. He told me later at first, but, um, I don't think it's a requirement. If Swift is your first language, then I think that's perfectly valid. You don't have to learn, you know, God forbid, Fortran or C or anything like that. You know, Swift is a perfectly powerful, fully featured programming language. And I don't think you have to feel that uh, if that's your first language, then that's a bad thing. Because, you know, you're going to start with Swift. But as the years go on, maybe I'm sure Swift will do well, but maybe it'll turn into Fortran. Who knows? And we'll be all be switching to java or something else or you know so it's it's fine that's the way the programming world works is things come and go so it's important to be flexible if nothing else did you work at that company all throughout university and even after you graduated i'm assuming you graduated or i did oh so going back to the school thing i was a english major in school so i had <laughs> pretty i had pretty poor grades when i was in high school i wasn't a very good student and um so, yeah, so I went into university. I didn't have a major. And then they said, you know, you can, if you take computer science 101 and a math course, I think, then you can switch your major to computer science. So I was like, all right. So I did that. I did all my electives. I did computer science 101 and math. And I was like, I, I don't like this at all. I don't like learning computers in school. In fairness, you know, I mean, you're like a, you're like a freshman. Like, what do you know? And it's computer science 101. Probably it's going to be a little bit boring. But I just didn't like it enough. And I was like, forget it. I'm, I don't want to do it. And yeah, then, no, I relate to that. I mean, yeah. I didn't study it necessarily in school, but I can, I can, I get that, you know, I really do. Plus, I was like, I've learning, I'm learning all this stuff on my own. And I'm thinking, I am already working. So, you know, of course, again, as a young person, you're like, I already know everything and I already have a job. So screw this. But I was like, well, I should probably still stay in school and I don't know, get a degree or something like that. And so, um, so you got an English degree, a degree, like a BA in English or something, like English literature? Yeah, I think one thing I noticed at the job was that like the 
see, well, I mean, I say this, but th like, there's nothing wrong with being like an, an engineer for your entire career. Like, that's kind of what I'm looking into. But like at the job, the people who had been there for a long time and who were like gone into management and done like higher stuff as opposed to like staying a senior engineer. And again, I, I just want to stress that there's nothing wrong with that. Like maybe they wanted to do that and that's fine. But they were like good communicators. They could present. We would go to client meetings and they would write proposals and, you know, they would need to write design documents and things like that. And, you know, people always say the soft skills are important, writing and communication skills. And I was always like, ah, whatever. I don't believe that. But I think when I saw that in action, when I was a student and I'm like, oh, that's actually true. And so I thought to myself, all the computer stuff, maybe I can learn on my own, as I'm already doing. But then maybe the quote unquote soft skills like writing and, you know, being a better communicator, maybe that's the kind of thing that I can do in school. And so that's the way I reasoned it through in my head, at least. And so, yeah, I studied uh, English literature. So I have an English degree. And um, I was working at the company, I think, for two or three years in university before I left. Yeah. So do you think that that still has proved to be true, not only what you observed early on, but throughout your life uh, up until now? Do you think the those soft skills, like that value, proved to be true? I think it's true because while I was there, I was helping out with writing uh, proposals for clients. I did like a few training sessions when we would finish a project and the client would say, OK, we need to bring in, you know, 10, uh, 50 people, 10 people at a time or whatever to be trained. And I would help out with the training sessions. And uh, yeah, I was like, there's definitely value in that. And as I, you know, as time went on, I was like, writing code is reminds me very much of writing anything, writing a blog post or that kind of thing. It's all just communication, whether it's to other humans or whether it's to a computer, then it all seems very similar. So when I look back at it now, I think it makes a lot more sense, which who knows, maybe that's like, you know, I'm just retconning my life into saying it all makes sense. I don't know. But um, looking back at it now, I think, yeah, there are definitely a lot of shared skills between uh, clear communication and like writing clear code. Has it come up a lot? Uh, I don't know how many different jobs you've had, but like even for instance at the your latest job, like was it was it much of a red flag, or did was it focused on a lot that you didn't have a computer science degree? I mean, I would assume like everyone that gets hired as an engineer at like Instagram, Facebook, like has to have a computer science degree. But the fact that you don't, that's like really encouraging. I get asked that a lot, maybe because people know that I don't have a CS degree. So they ask me like, hey, I'm applying at Facebook, but I don't have a CS degree. Like, is that OK? And so I do get asked that a lot. Uh, it's definitely not the majority. Like, it's not like, yeah, half of us haven't studied CS. No, it's probably like, I, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are. I would guess like 80, 90 percent of people, um, you know, wild guess, probably do have a CS degree. So I'm definitely in the minority. But, um, you know, it's not like. I didn't study that stuff. Like I studied algorithms and big O notation and that kind of thing. Like I studied it on my own because it's interesting to me. And um, so, yeah, I think you, you need to know the stuff that they teach there. But just because you didn't go to a school for it is okay. Because they do, you know, when you do an interview and you, you're on the whiteboard or whatever and you're coding stuff and talking about how would you do this in iOS, then, um, yeah, especially if you're doing like an iOS interview, that's, they don't really teach that. In, I think a lot of schools don't teach that anyway. You have to knew, know it on your own. So I think it's okay. However you learn it, then, um, yeah, you'll be okay. I hear, like, data structures and algorithms. Everyone's like, oh, you don't have a CSV? Okay, just study data, data structures and algorithms. Yeah. 
So how did you get into like Objective-C and, and iOS? Uh, I'm assuming sort of iOS was maybe first. I don't know. Maybe you did Mac development. Like how did you went from doing these like transportation systems? <laughs> I'm sure there was a bunch of stuff in the middle. Like how did you get into to the Apple world of programming? Yeah, after I left that job, um, I started doing consulting work, freelance work for web-related stuff. So I would work on the early days of the web and sort of dynamic sites. So I worked on Perl and PHP a lot. And since servers are usually like Unix, Linux-based, then I was running Linux on my, I think I had like a ThinkPad or IBM ThinkPad or something like that. And so I would dual boot between Linux and Windows because I would do all my work in Linux, but then if someone sends you like a Word document or something, then there wasn't really a good document editor, spreadsheet. That, so you still needed Windows sometimes. So I would dual boot. And then um, I think when Apple came out with OS X a few years, a few years into it, I was like, hey, this is pretty cool because it's Unix, so I can have a terminal. And I could also run Photoshop and Word and all that stuff. So I think it was like 2003 or so where I got my first Mac. And then, um, yeah, so I had a Mac. I was doing web development. And then eventually I was like, you know what? I kind of miss writing like quote unquote real code, which maybe will make people angry. I don't mean to say that. I'm exaggerating. I don't mean to say that web programming isn't real, but I'm like, I kind of miss writing C and managing memory and uh, compiling stuff and you know using an IDE and that kind of thing. And so I was like, maybe I'll get back into that somehow. And so since I had a Mac, I was like, maybe I'll write Mac apps. And so I learned a little bit of, uh, it was the Carbon framework back in those days, which is a C-based framework for writing Mac apps. And then, you know, I mean, it's hard to learn something unless you have a project in mind. So I was still doing web stuff. Nobody was paying me to write Mac apps. So it was just kind of a hobby. And then it wasn't until the iPhone came out and I got the, I didn't get the first iPhone, but I got the next one, the iPhone 3G. And then I was like, hey, you can write apps for this thing, right? So I was like, oh, maybe I should learn that. And so that's when I started picking up Objective-C and uh, programming for the iPhone. So it would have been like 2009, 2010 or thereabouts. Was that in your spare time? Yeah, because it was the same thing. I was still doing web, um, like back-end web systems and databases and that kind of thing as my day job. But then I thought, maybe I'll learn iPhone programming and um, you know, eventually transition into doing that full-time. So you started doing iOS development pretty early on, mm -hmm. and you had at least like three, four years of Objective-C experience when Swift comes out. Mm -hmm. um, so it comes out in the summer of 2014. What, what were you doing? Like, were you paying attention? And, and like, what were your thoughts when it was announced? Yeah, by then, I think I was, maybe I think I was still doing web stuff. So my freelancing had shifted to like, uh, let's say like 80% iOS and 20% still doing web um, not so much front-end, but like back-end stuff on the web. And then, um, yeah, Swift is announced, which is awesome. There had been like little tiny whispers over the years that they were working on something, but nothing would ever come out. So I was pretty excited because it was like um, the syntax is much simpler. I'd be doing a lot of Ruby at the time, and Swift is, you could say it's like Ruby-esque. There are a lot of similarities there. So the language just looked a lot better to me as well. So yeah, I was definitely excited to see it. Did you like run out and just download it immediately and start like download the book, start reading it? I know you really like to sit by a fire and drink, uh, drink a nice <laughs> drink and read. I remember from your Swift <laughs> Summit talk, you mentioned something about that. That is true, yeah. So did you just start reading the, the book or? I did, yeah. I was like, uh, I think that was great that they had that ready for launch. So yeah, absolutely. I downloaded the iBook, downloaded the Xcode because then they were like, there's this thing called Playgrounds you all need to try. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. So yeah, I read the book, you know, probably cover to cover over the over the first couple of days. Yeah, 
I remember just not really understanding what any of it meant because this is before I knew anything about programming. Right. Um, I had tried Objective-C that January, mm -hmm. uh, but still didn't really understand anything about the programming world. So I remember just like thinking, what does this even mean? Uh, and just searching for like its significance, yeah. whether or not there was significance. And like, so what did it really mean for you at the time? I think when they were talking on stage and you, and you read the book and then the focus that always stuck with me that I still remember that I still consider true now is was the focus on safety. And they were saying like in the wild, like I can imagine this internal battle in Apple between like, no, we love everything being uh, dynamic and everything is going to be ID or something like that versus like, no, we need stronger typing and we want to be sure what's in that array that you give to me. And it seems like on Swift, it came out that way, the safe way. They're like, no, we want strict typing, typed arrays. Uh, you know, we're going to have optionals. The default is non-optional, which means you have to have a value. And that seemed to be, I, I kind of like that, that kind of strictness around programming and correctness and saying you have to define this as an int and it is going to be an int for sure, not nil or some other, you know, non-existent value, but that's going to be it. So I really, I really like that. That really appealed to me because... I think a lot of people, non-programmers, think like, oh, programming, it's all ones and zeros. And, you know, of course, that's not true. It's very, you know, my my old boss in engineering, because he was an electrical engineer, trained as an electrical engineer, he'd always be like, oh, software, there's no such thing as software engineering. It's an art, not a science, which I kind of agree with as well. But um, but I think Swift brought a little bit more, maybe you call it rigor, I don't know, but a little more strictness to the language and the typing and with its focus on safety. So I really appreciated that part of it. Yeah, it seems like other languages, it's kind of like the wild, wild west, like JavaScript. You just like can oh, give man, any JavaScript, function, anything yeah, or yeah. something. I don't, I don't know that, that much about it. Okay, so for you, it sounds like you really appreciated, um, as you said, like that rigor. It kind of maybe made you feel a little bit more like what you were used to back in your like C, maybe your C days. I don't know. I don't know. Like you, you kind of have this like nostalgia sort of. Yeah, Almost. so you can get a little crazy too with you know buffer overflows and all you know all kinds of strange memory crashes, and I think Swift is a good combination of we want to be low level enough that you can do your crazy things if you want to, but we want to be kind of make you careful enough that to avoid um, undefined behavior, which is another big focus that they have to not have that, and I know that strikes a really good balance. I think that that appeals to me. So you are a pretty big part of the Swift community. Uh, you know, I saw you um, at Swift Summit. That's actually where we met in person. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we had like one or two interactions on Twitter before, but like we really uh, met in person um, at Swift Summit. Thank you for being super nice, by the way. Um, I was way, I was so excited at Swift Summit. I mean, just so much stimulus. It was actually almost too much by the second day. I was just like, I'm so tired. That conference was massive. I mean, the first yeah. year it was in a smaller, it was still pretty big, but a smaller venue. But as soon as I walked into the Palace of Fine Arts and then it was, it was like, yeah, so many people and the place was just huge, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And it was fun, beautiful yeah. too, yeah. right? The, at least the outside was like really beautiful. Yeah, and so you had all these amazing people and I was meeting Chris for the first time. So I was like really kind of nervous. I, I kind of tend to like, for better or worse, like fan out and like build, kind of build 
people up like unnecessarily right like i intend to like really admire people and so i'm like very nervous like i'm meeting chris for the first time and i'm meeting you but you guys were super nice and we sat down on the grass and we had like our little box sandwich lunch we had lunch outside i remember that was a lot i enjoyed that yeah so thank you for being so so nice um so that's actually kind of how we met but like the point is you are you have become and you are like a big part of the community. So you spoke at Swift Summit. You're speaking at Playgrounds. You've, you've done a lot of other conference um, talks. Um, you write a lot. Can you tell us a story about like kind of how that happened? So Swift comes out in 2014. Mm-hmm. Like I'm assuming you're not thinking like, oh, I'm just going to become Greg Heo, like the awesome <laughs> guy in the Swift community. Like, no, you're sitting by the fireplace like reading the Swift book. But now, you know, now, you know, you're working at Instagram and like you're a huge part of the community. Like what, how did that sort of work out? I had always, again, as my English major background thought like I should have a blog and write about programming and that kind of thing, which never really works. You know, you have to, it's a lot of effort. You have to keep up with it. You have to, you know, it's not just something you can do one off and then leave it for a long time. And that's kind of what I've done. And so part of that when I was learning iOS and getting into it was like, yeah, I should write a blog about iOS programming and Objective-C and that kind of thing. And I did write some things, but same thing. You have to be consistent with it. That's always the secret to, I don't know, starting any new habit or anything. And you have to be serious about it. So I think it was uh, 2012 in November, December, thereabouts. And the, of course, world-famous blog, everybody knows, raywenderlich.com. Um, I had bought a couple of other books and read some of the tutorials. And Ray had put out a call saying, we need more tech editors. So they had, I found out later, they had one tech editor, but they had more tutorials coming through, and so they needed some more help. So I was like, you know, okay, I'm an English major. I can do editing. I'm very picky with grammar. So I was like, I mean, it's not that kind of editing. It's tech editing. But I'm like, I can be very picky about code too. And so I applied for it, and I was like, yeah, I'll be a tech editor. So I ended up getting hired as a tech editor, not like full-time or on the payroll or anything like that. It was just a freelance thing where I would get like one tutorial a month and so me and my colleague, Mick Pringle, who's still with the site full-time now, um, the two of us got hired as tech editors at that time in 2012. And so I was like, okay, maybe eventually I'll write for the site as well, but I started as a tech editor. And then, yeah, things kind of grew and grew, and I did write for a book one year, I helped edit the book, and I kept doing the tech editing. So I think that's what really um, brought that habit, a little bit of consistency of like, yes, every month I'm going to have to go through this tutorial and read it and suggest edits and make it better and that kind of thing. And so I think that's what kind of led me to, yes, I want to write more on my own site and that kind of thing. Um, but then you also, uh, I've, I've heard you on the More Than Just Code podcast, and mm-hmm. I've, I heard you on the Ray Wenderlich um, podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk ab- about that? Like, how did you end up on those two podcasts? Yeah, I think it also continues with um, with Ray's site. So the story I always like to say is, uh, I think Ray was at WWDC in 2014, and then Swift is announced, and then I always like to say Ray was like, oh, no, our whole site is out of date now, right? <laughs> we have to burn it all to the ground and start over because every tutorial is, every iOS tutorial is Objective-C, right? And they had like a beginning Objective-C and all this stuff. And then I think he made, the, he made the very smart decision to say, we have to move the entire site over to Swift because I think the audience on his site kind of skews towards beginners. Um, not totally because they have a lot of advanced stuff as well. But, you know, he was like, a lot of people are going to want to start learning iOS because of Swift. And where are they going to go? They're going to read the Swift book. They'll find random blog posts. But, you know, they're also going to come here. And so we need to move to Swift. And so uh, he got in touch with me, I think, while he was still in San Francisco. And he was like, hey, you know, you've been doing a really good job with the tech editing and the writing. Do you want to join 
the company full time and like help out with moving everything over to Swift and start doing video tutorials and things like that. And so I was like, yeah, so I did. And so I worked with, I worked full time on the site for about a year and a half until the following September, I think, September, October. And um, so, yeah, so that's how I got involved with the podcast and uh, the More Than Just Code, uh, one of the hosts, Tim Mitra, he, well, he's in, in, he's in Toronto, so I know him, but he also writes for com, And so that's how I kind of got to know him. And then he was like, hey, one of our co-hosts is gone fishing this day. Do you want to jump on the podcast instead to fill the spot? So I was like, sure. So, um, yeah, so I think a lot of people I met in the community because they also write for Ray. And so sort of a little mini community of us going around there. Um, so that's how I got involved with those two podcasts, at least. I was one of those people that was looking for you know information about learning Swift, mm-hmm. and I ended up getting the um, iOS Apprentice uh, series. Yeah. And that was a huge part on my ability to you know be where I am now. I actually never reached out to, well, obviously Ray hits his name, but anybody that worked on that series, I probably should because that is uh, – for at least for me, a life-changing series. I never actually finished it, but the first, second, and third, it really just, that format mm-hmm. works with my brain and really, like, I you know, it, I had to be patient with it, but, like, it really got me, like, to understand, okay, I get what's going on here. And, like, just to be able to sit down with, well, it was a PDF, but, like, sit down with a book, mm-hmm. right, and, like, I, I don't know, man, so just thank you so much if you had anything to do with that, but, yeah. That is almost a one-man operation. It's uh, Matthias Holmans in the Netherlands who wrote iOS Apprentice. Wow. Um, but yeah, yeah. He, is, he is awesome. Super smart guy. And um, I think one of the traits of like really smart people I find is that they're very good at writing to beginners. Because you'll find some people who know a lot, but then they have trouble explaining things to beginners. But um, I don't know. That's what they always say, right? The best way to learn is to teach or explain it to somebody. And yeah. he is really, really good at explaining things so that beginners will understand. But also, like, when I read iOS Apprentice, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, like, I enjoyed reading it, too. <laughs> so, um, man, <clears throat> sorry. I just, I'm just thinking about this iOS Apprentice thing getting a little emotional. Really. <laughs> man, I should probably reach out to him. Um, you should send him an email. And uh, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what was your first conference talk like and like how did that work out like okay so you're on a podcast you're on the other other podcast you're doing tech editing for ray wenderlich maybe you had a couple blog posts Mm -hmm. like how do you get invited to your first conference and like what was it and what did you speak on i had spoken at sort of local meetups in toronto when i was when i was there so there's that the first conference i think might have actually been ray's conference so that in that sense, it doesn't, not that it doesn't count. I was going to say it doesn't count, but it was RW DevCon, the first edition. So I had been work, I was working for Ray full-time already. Um, yeah, I'd started in June. The conference was the following February. So I think that was the first big conference that I spoke at. But you could say, well, you work for him, so of course you spoke there. And I did a tutorial. I did two tutorials that first year. Um, so that was the first. And then I think that also that year, 2015 it would have been, uh, I sent in a proposal for 360 iDev. That's the conference in Denver in August or thereabouts. And so I sent in a proposal and got accepted. So I spoke there as well. So that was the first conference that I applied to speak at and was accepted. Wow, okay. For some reason, I thought like your people are invited. I mean, I'm sure people are invited, but they're, you can also just submit a proposal. I guess I knew that like with Playgrounds, you could submit a proposal. Um, I was going to, but 
I don't know, there's that kind of doubt and, 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 and things like that. Like, how do you come up with an idea and, and how do you sort of feel like it's worthy, I guess, that other people will be interested? Yeah, I mean, conferences do invite, you know, they'll be like, we're going to pre-invite 10 people who are, you know, we know, and then we'll have another 10 slots for, um, you know, random people on the internet to submit proposals. So yeah, most conferences do both. Um, how do you decide about an idea? I don't know. I mean, usually it's like I was reading this book about um, how to give a good TED talk. Not that I'm going to give a good TED. Not that I'm going to give a TED talk, but it was like I was just looking for speaking tips in general, right? Okay. And so at the end of it, they were like, and you know, TED talks have that particular format. They're very inspiring and all of that. And generally, that's not what you have in a like in a technical talk that I usually do. But anyway, I read it anyway for speaking tips. And at the end, they were like, it's not good enough to find an idea and say like, here's something that I do and it's kind of cool and I'm going to talk about. Again, the standard here we're talking about is TED Talks though, but he said, that's not good enough. You have to say something like, here is this thing, it changed my life and I cannot help but talk about it. Like I must talk about it. Oh, and so that was a really interesting thing. And there's other, I think uh, back in my English major days, there's other books like Letters to a Young Poet or something like that, where he's like, you know, I, I feel like I must write and that's how you know you're a writer and that kind of thing. So um, maybe as an English major, I felt inspired by that, but uh, I'm a little more cynical these days. Anyway, so the TED Talk advice was like, you have to find something that like you have to talk about. It was so life-changing that you feel like you have to go out and spread the word. It's not enough to say like, oh, I learned this new Xcode shortcut and I'm going to do a talk on it. Like that's, you know? So anyway, that's the TED Talk bar, which is like way up here. Right, um, okay. I'm gesturing with my hands. It's way up here, but of course for a normal technical iOS conference, the bar is not that high. So, But I still try to think of that kind of thing. Like what's something that I did or I worked on or I learned that's not just interesting trivia-wise, but it's like so interesting that it has changed the way I think about programming or it has changed the way I work. And you know, I'm going to take that and try to shape a talk out of it. So again, I try to, you know, like when you set a goal, you should like make it like a really big stretch goal. That kind of, that kind of, some people do that as like a life hack, maybe you'll call it. So when I'm thinking of talks, I think of it like that. Like I have that TED talk bar in my head and I try to find an idea like that. But of course I'm not going to reach that because, you know, we're just talking about Swift and programming. So I'm probably not going to hit that level, but I try to have that in mind when I think about talk ideas. Now, your Swift Summit talk, I felt, was kind of like in that vein. You <clears throat> seem very passionate about it, uh, you know, reading code more. I, I actually think about that a lot, um, oh, That just hear. that idea, yeah. like reading code more. Yeah. Um, like I'll be, you know, at the end of like a really long day, hanging out with maybe some friends. We just got back from like a wedding mm -hmm. or something. I'm just remembering like this last weekend. <clears throat> just like looking at code that I had just written. I should probably read other people's code more, but like I'm still <laughs> in the phase of like reading my own code yeah. and just like looking at it and thinking about it and what am I doing here and how can I do it better? And, and so I was thinking about like your Swift Summit talk. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So do you remember what your first topic was at 360 iDev? 360 iDev, I remember. It was, um, it was called Switching Your Brain to Swift. So that was 2015. <laughs> Uh, August, so Swift had been out for a year by then, and I had thought, um, well, I mean, I was I was working for Ray full time, so I'd been doing Swift uh, for the entire year, but a lot of or some of what I was doing was converting some of our old Objective C tutorials to Swift. So I had done a lot of like, okay, here's the Objective C way to do it, and here's the Swift way to do it, and I'd been doing that for you know a number of months, 
and working in Swift a lot. And so by the time that August rolled around or whenever the call for proposals was, I thought, um, I know a lot of people out there weren't using Swift yet. It was still early days. You know, Swift 1.0 was not the best release. And so it was 2015. We had another WWDC. So a lot of people were reevaluating. Is this the time for me to switch to Swift? And so I thought, maybe that's a good time. And again, with that TED Talk idea in my head. I was like, what's something that's changed my life? It's like, I've read a lot of Objective-C. I've been moving a lot of it to Swift. I've been writing a lot of new Swift code. And what are the things in my brain that I had to change from you know, the old Objective-C way that was lodged in my head that I had to completely rip out and replace with a Swift equivalent? And so I had a bunch of those kind of thoughts in my head. And so I thought, yeah, I think the timing is right because a lot of people are reevaluating Swift. And so that was my talk there. Yeah, so my, my feeling is like the ability to do something like that and, and come up with a concept or a topic that would be interesting to most of the people in the audience mm -hmm. uh, because usually the people in the audience are working developers, mm -hmm. right? Because it's expensive to go and the, the companies send them there. Yeah, uh, those That ability comes with time, right? So you had experience with Objective-C. Now you're switching your brain to Swift. So you had like, you have that time, that experience where you could come up with that concept. I'm, I'm at a stage where I'm still very early on, but I feel like I have this desire to want to share my experience, right? I mean, here I am on a podcast <laughs> and I have a meetup and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And so, and it's just, I don't know, seeing everyone out there going, traveling the world and like going to these conferences, it just seems really cool. Um, but I think maybe I just need to be patient like, and let sort of these ideas come to mind. But I like what you're saying with this TED Talk bar. I, I, think, uh, I think I relate to that a lot, and that can be very inspiring. Like It can help generate ideas, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, everybody, I mean, maybe this, I've heard this advice for blog posts, but it's like everybody is a step ahead of somebody else. Like You know more today than you did yesterday because i think a lot of people will say like oh there's nothing new i contribute i can contribute everybody already knows whatever it is that i just learned or that i know but it's like no it's not true there's always somebody who is like where you were yesterday and so there's always value in sharing the ideas whether it's with a talk or a blog post or whatever and so i've heard a lot of people express that kind of sentiment that you just had but um i would say you know there's always somebody out there in the world who is a step behind you and so it's always valuable to share that, again, whether it's with a talk or a blog post. But it's definitely hard to gauge that. <laughs> like even I'm like, oh, everybody, you know, I'm going to talk about reactive programming, but everybody already knows about that. That's not valuable. But you just have to say, no, it's, you know, some people don't know this, so I'm going to talk about it. And I, in particular, I really like hearing relative beginners talk about what they're working on or some concept that they learn. Like if some beginner said, uh, I just learned about blocks or closures, and I'm going to talk about it. I always find that really interesting because as someone who used to do like training stuff, I'm like, how are they understanding it? How are they explaining it? How does their, their mind work now that they've just learned it? And that's always I always find that really interesting and really valuable to know how people are learning these things, even if it's like, I already know it. I don't need to attend this talk. But no, I still go because I find that stuff really interesting. Yeah, I, I hopefully there's there is that feeling, uh, especially amongst like beginners, that they're able to share. I mean, I remember when I was first starting out, I would make YouTube videos about like how to make a button. Mm -hmm. Like one of my first meetups was literally about how to make a button mm -hmm. and like how to make a button do something. Is your YouTube and video still up? It might be. Okay. Yeah, I think it might be under the Learn Swift LA. Okay. Which is my meetup. Go find it. But uh, definitely, I relate to that. Like I think sharing, no matter your your level like really increases yes. um, your ability you know to, to, to learn and just like 
uh, for me, it was a lot of the encouragement I'd get from encouragement from people. Like when I would teach, they'd be like, wow, this is really good. Like, you know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I would say just because you should like you shouldn't say, oh, I'm still a beginner, so I can't write a blog post or speak at a conference. Like, that's not true. So I would just encourage people to, you know, look at it big picture, take a step back and say, all right, I obviously don't know nothing. I know something. So what is that thing that will be interesting to people? So, yeah. You've done tutorial type like conference speaking, mm -hmm. um, you've done the traditional presentation style mm -hmm. uh, conference speaking. What do you like about one and dislike about one, and you know, like and dislike about the other? The if 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 there are any, like you know, yeah, the tutorial ones I like because you feel like uh, if it's like workshop style where it's like you're gonna code on you know on on the big screen and people will follow along. Uh, I think I like that and. I think people attending like it because they feel like they have gone through the steps and then by the end of it, it's like, ah, I have a finished product, so to speak, right? And you get that sense of accomplishment. Right. And so that's pretty cool. I think that maybe the con is like, yes, you do have, you can't just sit there and listen to the person talking for an hour or two hours, three hours sometimes. You have to actually actively participate. Maybe that's a con because, you know, some conferences you can just sit there and maybe take notes. But at that kind of a, a workshop style thing, you do have to, actively participate and from my end it's definitely way maybe way more work to prepare because you have to think of all the steps and think about what could go wrong but i think if done well then those are like super valuable if that especially if that's your learning style like you like following along with somebody or you like looking over someone's shoulder you see how they do it and then you go back to your desk and then you kind of do it you try it yourself then i think the workshop format can work really well for that um, for that kind of person um, so I enjoy it, but yeah, it is a lot of preparation, but usually it's worth it. So I like doing that. Uh, for the traditional talks, I would say it's hard to, like I've attended a lot of them. I've been to a lot of good talks. I've been to a lot of bad talks. I don't want to talk, you know, talk <laughs> negative about anybody, but I think it's hard. I think a lot of people put like too much technical content is what I would say. Like you go to a talk and they're like, here's this super table view that I made that can, you know, span the entire screen and do this. And here's how I built it. And they show all this code and they show all this other stuff. And then you leave. And then the next day you think, what was it about? It was like about a table view or something. But how did it work? I don't remember. <laughs> and it's just way too much to do in like a 20 minute or a 40 minute talk. So if I had to give advice to anybody, I would say, you know, you got to distill it down to like one idea and say, you know, just present something. And plus, I don't know, if you think of like your Swift, Swift Summit talks, like, you know, if I asked you uh, Chris Eidhoff's talk or something, or Jesse Squires' talk or somebody's talk, like, what do you remember from it? What's the one thing that you remember? And it'll probably be right. a very small thing, like, oh, he did that thing where he put that protocol in here, <laughs> but you don't remember <laughs> the rest of it, right? And so that's what I would say, and, and personally, for myself, that's what I try to do when I'm giving a talk at like Swift Summit or 360 iDev is to say, what is like the essential core of the idea and you don't want to like beat it over the person's head and just repeat one word over and over again. But, and maybe again, this is a little TED talky, but you want to have like one, two, three core ideas, give some really, really simple examples, but nobody is going to remember all of that code that you had on there or anything. You're just going to remember the idea. So I think that's the important thing to focus on. So that's something that I'm trying to do is to really distill it down. And then if people are interested, 
then at the end of the talk, you say, and here is a blog post I wrote about it. Here are some more resources, and I will tweet this out. I'll put it on my website. And if people are interested, like the next day or the next week, they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember Garrick was there, and he was talking about uh, how to do a button, and he had this cool thing. And then they'll go on your site, and they'll look it up if they're interested, right? But they're not going to remember exactly what you did throughout your talk. And so that's what I'm trying to do in there. So maybe in that sense, those talks are also very difficult to write and to plan because, you know, I try to make them, again, one memorable thing or something like that, you know, one takeaway or call to action or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I enjoy doing that because they're kind of fun to write. And I always enjoyed doing slides and doing funny animations <laughs> or whatever just to amuse myself. Um, so, yeah, I kind of enjoy that, too. Why do you think the traditional, more presentation-style conferences are, are more popular, or why there's more of those? It seems to me like RW yeah. is like the only tutorial-type conference. It is very, like, very, very difficult to plan a good workshop. And maybe I would say anybody could stand up and give a talk, like, um, like Playgrounds is doing lightning talks, right? Which I think are relatively easy to do. You just stand up there and you talk for five minutes about something you're working on. And so it's also relatively easy, maybe that's not a good thing to say, I don't know, relatively easy to give like a 20-minute talk or a 40-minute talk, but planning a good workshop session is a whole other set of, like, you need to know how to teach, how do people learn, how to, you know, time things properly, and it's a very different set of skills, and I think people, if you ask someone who's never done it, they I would guess that they would, like, grossly over underestimate the amount of work it takes to prepare, but once you've done it once, you're like, wow, that was really, really difficult, so it's difficult to do, and if you're doing something like RW DevCon, you have to find, I don't know, how many sessions they do, like 20 sessions? You may have to find 20 people who can do that, which is very difficult to do. But luckily, Ray has a whole fleet of people who write very good tutorials. So it works out for him. Because, um, <laughs> you know, you have people who already know how to do it. But I think that's why it's not so common, because it's, it's just very difficult to do. Yeah, it's in a way, it's kind of like kind of a bummer. Um, because like it's sort of, to me the better of the two like i think there's more value maybe mm -hmm. or the value is just different and uh, maybe i have i'm like sort of failing to really appreciate the value of the more presentation style one i think the presentation style one like you can just fit more people in a room so economically maybe it makes more sense that's true yeah. whereas like with rw how many people are in each classroom i think they had 200 attendees last year and three tracks so you have an average of like 60 ish 60 to 70 wow. people per room and those are big classrooms they were pretty wow. big i think the first year it was like 150 people so it was more like 40 to 50 people in the room do you think that that was pretty manageable, like the 60 people, or do you feel... Uh, I think even the 60 people, was like the way that we formatted it was um, like you would talk for a few minutes, you would live demo something for 20 minutes or so, and people would follow along. But then there was like a 10, 15 minute break, and people who fell behind could catch up, but then you would walk around, you and like, you would have like a buddy, like a tutorial buddy, right. like they already yeah. knew your material, and the two of you would walk around the room and people would put up their hand and ask questions. So I think yeah. that was really important too, was to you get that, you know, people catch up and then you do part two, you do more live coding, people follow along and then you have another break where, you know, people can catch up and follow the instructions and ask more questions. So I think it was, it was pretty manageable. Yeah. I think just sort of like the point of one and the other, they're sort of, they share some, some goals, they share some possibilities, mm -hmm. but the main point is sort of different. Like with the workshop, it's really about like connecting directly and learning a very hands-on yeah. presentation style um it's i think the best maybe the best value 
um, distinct value is sort of what you were saying is like the inspiration kind of TED talk takeaway. Because when I think about it, I mean, I already, I already told you, like you are still, I'm thinking about what you said, like just the other day, I'm thinking about your Swift Summit talk. And like, maybe there's a few others, mm -hmm. but I would say for the most part, yours and the Uber one, yeah. I was just, I was impressed by the possibilities. Yeah. Um, those are the ones. And so you know, like maybe they all, they tend to skew a little bit too technical, although that's good, right? You want that technical stuff, but like maybe that's like some of the value that that's gained like distinctly. Yeah. But then they share the they share the idea of connecting with people. Like I'm meeting you, I'm meeting Chris like in person. Yeah. I mean, that's the trade-off I think about with talks is like you can be very technical and present a lot of technical information and the people who are interested in will get it at the time and maybe they'll remember it. Or you can be, a little more broad, uh, if that's the right word, and have so like one, like I said, one big idea, and then people will remember that after. But you know, I'm not. I don't know if I'd say one is necessarily better than the other because if you're really interested in, you know, video toolbox, the video toolbox framework, and you go to a super technical talk where they go over all the things, like that will appeal to. I shouldn't have picked video toolbox, like you know, UI view <laughs> or something like that. That's very technical that we all use because nobody uses video toolbox. But if it were about UI views and it was very technical, and maybe that would appeal to some people. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that's a bad thing but it's just what end of the spectrum do you want to be on? And so just personally, I've sort of, I think, decided to go on the other end. Um, yeah. So we've come to the hour mark. So uh, um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know it's a beautiful day out there and you probably want to get outside, <laughs> but I want to just do a couple of things before we end. Uh, there's, you're, you're a big part of the community. There's, and there's different sort of parts, I would say, like, you know, you have people who are like really just like working with Swift every day and like building apps. And then you have like people who are really into the open source stuff, mm -hmm. whether they're like contributing to open source or you have like someone like Jesse, who's like um, kind of consolidating all the, like the, the open source stuff mm -hmm. in that weekly brief. Um, you have <clears throat> like people who are really into like, I don't know, maybe doing Swift on the server and like uh, the IBM. You have people who write blogs, people who have podcasts, people who speak. Like what what are you what's your focus? Like what's your passion and your focus with Swift right now? That's a great question. You should have sent these questions in advance, I feel like. <laughs> feel free to take a <laughs> breath. <laughs> I would say um I'm not doing very much Swift at my day job. So it's like a uh evenings and weekends kind of a passion hobby for me. And so yeah. lately I felt like, all right, I can't learn everything there is to know about Swift. I'm, you know, I'm learning that in my life just in general. Like you have to pick something to focus on. And so um, I think like there are lots of things that I want to learn about Swift and compilers and things like that. But I think what I have been doing recently, which I think I, I like to think I do pretty well, is like um, explaining stuff. So my new thing is I'll find a random bit in the Swift open source, usually in the standard library, because, you know, that's stuff that we use, like how do arrays work? Or not just right. how do arrays work, but like how are they built? Like the iterator or the sort operator, like we all use them every day, or the subscript indexing, we use them every day, but how do they work? Like, again, right. it goes back to my childhood tendencies of like, you know, I like to know how things work and play around with them. And so just out of my own curiosity, I'm like, I'm going to go look at the standard library code and see how it works. And then along the way, I was like, maybe I should write about it. Maybe other people will be interested. And so I think that's the little niche or something that I've found for myself because I enjoy doing it and I'll write it up and people seem to, you know, I get some good feedback on them and people, at least some people seem to enjoy them. And so I feel like, I think this is what I can do to 
contributors to kind of demystify Swift in the standard library a bit and then help people feel. And that was also, like you mentioned, like the Swift Summit talk was like to um, encourage people to like, yeah, if you use something all the time and if you're a little bit curious about it, we're very lucky to live in our open source environment with Swift and foundation, things like that. So why not, you know, encouraging people to go and have a look themselves. And so that's kind of what I'm interested in and what I'm writing about. And um, so, yeah, I think that's the at least one of the little areas yeah. I found for myself. Yeah, that's great. And I'm actually remembering this um, this blog post. It was pretty, I would say, early on, maybe before you started really like speaking everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about like, I can't remember, like. 15 or 115 protocols <laughs> or something. Do you remember? That was my fr- Swift, the Swift Summer version one talk uh, from 2015. Yeah. But it, it wasn't, oh, it was a talk. It wasn't a blog post? It was both. I, I made it a blog post. It was 55 protocols in the standard library. What 55 protocols in the standard library taught me or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, that was a talk, but I turned it into a, that was something I was trying to do and I, I should still do, but, you know, after the talk, I would, put out the blog post version of it so if you like videos you can watch it if you want to read you can read but Uh, that's related it's the same subject uh, uncovering and demystifying the swiss standard library exactly yeah it was before it was before open source so that's why i could only look at protocol i couldn't look at how they were built but i'm like i can at least look at what the protocol definition is and so yeah that was my first swift summit talk wow wow that's so good that's so great okay i like that and to me i think that that is something that is like its own thing. Um, and I've been thinking about all the different sort of parts mm-hmm. of the Swift community and, and like, that is a thing like going through and reading the Swift standard library and learning from it and what it can teach you about how Swift works or how to make your Swift, you know, your Swift code better. Yeah. Um, I think you, you talk a little bit about that. So yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing that. And I look forward to, to reading or hearing or seeing more of that um, in the future. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so the last uh, bits, the very last bits, um, where can people contact you online? They can... Um, go to if my, at all. Oh, if, <laughs> yeah, I'm incognito. I'm here in my fortress of solitude. Um, <laughs> they can uh, go to my website, gregheo.com. There is a link to email me. You can find me on Twitter. I'm also Greg Heo. You can. Uh, I have open DMs, so some people DM me with questions. That's fine. And then the blog where I write about Swift is uh, swiftunboxed.com. Okay, cool. And so you said open DM. That means like anybody can. I've never heard that term before. So. Yeah, there's a setting in Twitter where uh, I think when they added like only people who I follow can DM me or something like that. Right. Okay. I'm familiar. So, nice. but yeah, I have a switch to anybody in the world can DM me. So I turned that on, and then uh, I don't get too much spam or anything like that. So uh, I some people check don't my like setting. Some people don't like email, right? They want to like message you some other way. So they're like, "Can I contact you on Facebook Messenger?" I'm like, nah, I really use that for friends only." So. Uh, Twitter DMs are fine if you want to DM me. Yeah, I, I contact a lot of guests through Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and do they yeah, have that so. setting open or do they follow you already? Some do. Okay. Some don't, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't say, but I feel like I haven't had any trouble with that. Yeah, I'm like, I'm so. not like, you know, like a celebrity with like a 10 million followers or anything like that. So <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'll leave the DMs open. So that's fine. You can always get in touch with uh, me there. 
That's so great. That's so great. I just had like visions of like you like in the future with like Gucci sunglasses, like getting out of like a Subaru with like cameras flashing. Yeah, you live in L.A., so you probably see that kind of thing a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's how it is down here. No, not where I where I live. I live in like central, but <clears throat> definitely like in like the West Hollywood area. All of L.A., okay. I imagine, is like that. So what do I know? So the very last bit, um, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Oh, again, I wish you had sent the questions in advance. I would say, um, <laughs> well, it's part of my theme is probably uh, read a lot of Swift. Not necessarily the standard library, but there's a third-party framework you use or something like that. And um, just to read a lot of Swift. There are a few things like um, the Arts, uh, now I don't know, but like the Artsy app is open source. The um, Kickstarter app is open source. I believe at least one of them is in Swift. And so just reading a lot, I think, as I said, reading a lot makes you a better writer. Like that's true for writing novels and things like that. And so I would say, um, aside from writing the Swift book, and that's the obvious advice, and aside from, of course, writing a lot of code is maybe also the obvious advice, but maybe the not so obvious advice is to read a lot of code. So third-party libraries that you use, Swift standard library code, uh, entire apps, again, like Artsy, Kickstarter, that kind of thing. And just seeing how other people do things will give you ideas about what not to do and also what to do, what you want to try. And so that's probably the, the advice that I give. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think it's uh, we're so lucky to have so much open source Swift that we could, um, you know, if that's your learning style uh, or if, you know, yeah, if that's your learning style, you can go through and read, learn from other people's code. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, it's great. Thank you for sharing that. I thought I had sent you the, I always send my guests like this prep show, like pre-show doc with like questions. That question is on there, but like a lot of the other questions aren't like these, you know, a lot of them are just kind of like off the top of my head, yeah, but, yeah. uh, I didn't get any but, documents. No, you, you, I didn't get any your, your answers were great, man. I think, <laughs> I think you've done an excellent job. Don't worry. Thank you. Our listeners, our listeners out there, I'm sure they're really enjoying this episode. Okay. So. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today for sharing your story. I mean, you know, you're living there and living the dream in San Francisco, <laughs> working at Instagram. You got your like Commodore 64. Like, your dad brought it home. You started like doing basic programming and like playing video games and then just continuing through high school, not really being like super, you know, it, it, it sounds like challenged in high school and not really that into it in college either. Like you were more just into it on your own. And you didn't even get a computer science degree. You got a bachelor's or like, a, you know, a degree in English. Mm -hmm. But you were working as a as an engineer, like doing transportation, like programming. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, like continuing after after college and eventually like working you know, doing web programming, but then eventually working um, with um, Ray Wenderlich. You know, you were doing like Mac programming on the side, but then you started doing the tech editing with Ray Wenderlich. And then. Um, you know, iPhone comes out and doing app programming and then Swift comes out and like hired full time with Ray to like convert everything to Swift. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, somehow I don't, I don't even know, like you ended up at Facebook. We didn't even talk about that. But uh, yeah, and like doing all this Swift conference speaking and blogging and and like I love that you are you've found this this niche of like the demystifying like of the Swift standard library and like that's your your thing. I don't really hear many other people talking about that. Like, you know, maybe some people do, but like, that's like your thing. That's really cool. Like reading. I think about that a lot, like 
reading code like i i do i imagine you like sitting by a fire like <laughs> i sure wish code, i had a like... fireplace here i hate to bust <laughs> anybody's bubble but i mean i live in san francisco in a, an apartment here i don't have a fireplace unfortunately but yeah <laughs> oh man i'll get so, one of yeah, those youtube you... fireplace videos and i'll play that yeah. maybe next time but, <laughs> exactly well thank you for having me on the show it was a nice it was a nice walk down memory lane and i always enjoyed nerding about swift with other people so it was great my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to, to speaking with you again. I look forward to like seeing you again. Have an amazing time in February in Australia Thank at you. Playgrounds Comp. Um, and when I come to San Francisco, hopefully we can hang out. If you ever come to L.A., let me know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, thank you so, so much. Thanks, Gary. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.